The Scene, a bustling university library in early fall 2022. The computers are packed with students. Some are writing essays, some are taking tests, and some are hurrying to print that one thing they need for that one class with that one professor who refuses to embrace technology. Study groups litter the first and second floor as students work out the intricacies of anatomy, mathematics, and physics on rolling whiteboards. Solo students seek refuge in silent study areas on the ground or third floor. The students that come into this library operate under the belief that they will be provided with what they need to excel in their college career, including the space they need to succeed. At a university library like this one, students also have access to a host of resources, books, academic journals, databases of newspapers, photographs, and art, up-to-date information about citation styles, and subject librarians when students need that little bit of extra help. Now, personally, I think that this is the best resource any library can offer, but I may be a touch biased. Anyway, even with all of these resources, there are gaps in the information that is being offered because access to knowledge costs a lot of money. Libraries have to pick and choose where they're going to spend their money, and this usually means that the journals, databases, etc. that are needed by the majority of students are the ones that will be purchased. And even with all of these resources, students still find times when they have to hunt in order to find accessible versions of research material. Now, this is where subject librarians can help, but even this resource can be hard to come by if libraries don't have the budget to employ the people that are needed. Now, I know that most people aren't necessarily well-versed when it comes to the budgetary restrictions of a library. I certainly wasn't when I first started college. It never occurred to me to take a deeper look at what goes into running a library. I just knew that the library was the place where I could go for resources and help when I needed it. And, I mean, that's not all that libraries mean to me, and we'll get into that in greater detail as we go. But for now, before we delve into the nitty-gritty, I'd like to give y'all a pop quiz. So, when I say the word library, what do you think of? Don't overthink it, just let the thoughts come. It's really more of like the services and the things that we offer. So I think of copyright, I think of OER, I think of open access, I think of repositories. I think wealth of knowledge, genuinely. Values. People, safety, expression, creativity just a safe place to learn and to explore. Learning and collaboration and access. The organization of information, all kinds of information. Accessible books is the first thing that I think about. Safe. Safe is a word for me, for the library. Connecting people with information. And it's an emotional connection because I feel safe in there because not a lot of people are in there. It's a place with an indefinite number of ideas and stories, and I can explore it without being um, tasseled. Services, community, collaboration, emotion, connection, safety, access. All of these words describe libraries, but none of these words by themselves can sum up the many things that libraries can be and what they represent to society. Libraries should be places where knowledge is available and accessible to all who enter. But this raises an important question. Who should be allowed access and who gets to make that decision? 
These questions have been raised in multiple ways in speculative fiction over the last decade or so. Authors like Rachel Kane, Genevieve Cogman, Rod Duncan, and A.J. Hackwith have created libraries that are vast and impenetrable places of secrets and silence, and only a privileged few are allowed inside. The worlds that these authors have created are fantastical and seem far-fetched, but these books make me wonder if there's something more behind their use as subject matter and what that says about how society views libraries. Because it seems that as much as people may love libraries, others seem to fear them and they worry about what secrets they might contain. The representations in speculative fiction point toward the way that libraries evoke fears of loss, cultural or otherwise. They are playgrounds in which authors explore cultural anxieties. And ours is a culture consumed by anxiety, y'all. And that anxiety is what brings us here to this moment and this conversation. My name is Elizabeth Hedrick. I'm a PhD candidate in rhetoric at Texas Women's University, and you're listening to Anxiety in the Archives, my podcast dissertation. That's right. I said podcast dissertation. Basically, I'm taking the most hallowed and often lamented academic enterprise, the crafting of the dissertation, off the page and feeding it right into your ears. I want to create a more transparent and more publicly accessible version of the process it takes to create a dissertation. Now, the end product, the completed dissertation, is usually the focus of attention because creating a dissertation is a lot of work. In focusing on the end product, however, we miss everything that was happening behind the scenes while that dissertation was coming together, including a whole hell of a lot of blood, sweat, and many, many tears. So many tears, y'all. Just all of the tears. But in order to create a dissertation, we have to create a prospectus first. Write a prospectus in order for us to give give you your hunting license, and so therefore you have to write sort of a, you know, well here's the map I'm going to follow, and here's all the tools I'm going to take with me. You know what I mean? A prospectus is essentially a roadmap for the journey that I'll take in the creation of my dissertation. I have to explain to my committee and to the graduate school what I hope to achieve and how I'm going to get there. The specific elements that I need to include are my motivation. The question that I'll be asking, because there always has to be a question, how I expect to add to the scholarly conversation, and even my methods and what materials I'll be using to answer the question that I'm asking. So the traditional format for a prospectus, at least at my school, is a 10-page document that contains all of these elements, 10 pages only, and not a single page more. It's not a lot of room for all of the information that we're being asked to convey. And it doesn't take into account non-traditional formats, like, for instance, a podcast. And there's also the inherent contradiction in the fact that the prospectus must be in the same format as the dissertation. So what are we supposed to do when our dissertations veer from the hard-packed academic path of a proto-book? You improvise, you adapt, you overcome! Non-traditional theses and dissertations are not a new concept. Within the last 10 years, we've seen dissertations as plays, hip-hop albums, graphic novels, and even one other podcast dissertations. 
Doctoral candidates have been moving outward and blazing new trails, but there are still far too few of us. And that is a problem. But before we get too far, we do need to keep in mind that this is still a project based in academia, and so there will be a lot of citations. The normal academic convention when doing a work like this verbally is to say, quote, unquote, every time someone reads a citation, but it can also be distracting to hear this every few minutes. So to avoid that, let's try this instead. Anytime you hear, that means I've used a source, which you'll be able to find on the show's website. Quick, clean, and easy. Bada bing, bada boom. Now, back to the point at hand. Studies have been conducted for decades about the need for a change in doctoral research. Even back in 1998, Catherine Saunders examined the ways in which the push for change and evolution were being met by resistance from academia. Sanders found that the unwillingness to change seemed steeped in tradition. Excellence in higher education has often been judged by the rigors of that tradition and by those who had the stamina to complete the doctoral degree. Now, I'd like to draw your attention to a particular part of that quote, the rigors of that tradition. That word rigor, it's going to be an important word as we move through this dissertation. The literal definition of the word brings up severity, strictness, austerity, exactness, and even cruelty. That's not great, but you hear it a lot in academia. Academic rigor is often the cudgel that is employed to ensure that grad students keep doing things the way that they've always been done. For the last 10 years, scholars across the humanities disciplines, especially in English studies, have been practically begging their peers to think outside the traditional dissertation box. In 2016, Doris Watson and Kimberly Nellis stated that academia needs to begin considering alternative dissertation formats with a more creative, flexible model that still maintains high intellectual standards for the academy. Watson and Nellis believe that scholars can veer off the beaten path and try new formats while still achieving that academic rigor that we all love so much. And if we're really being honest, doing this kind of project in a non-traditional format does create a level of difficulty that is absent in the traditional proto-book format where you have an easily recognizable structure an introduction, conclusion, and four to five chapters, black and white text on the page. The difficulty for my project lies in the simple fact that there is no real model for this format. My committee members and I don't have a roadmap for what I'm trying to do. I won't write one chapter after another, revise, and have the whole document approved. I will be creating episodes, cohesive, contained segments that have to be written for an audio format and include all the research and citations that would happen in a traditional dissertation. But producing any kind of non-traditional dissertation is going to require skills beyond what might be needed for a traditional dissertation. Now, having said that, let me follow up by saying that I am not trying to diminish the accomplishments of those who do traditional dissertations. This final project is a big deal for all of us. We've worked incredibly hard survived numerous hours of coursework, and passed grueling qualifying exams. We still have that one final hurdle to clear, and it's a doozy, y'all, but the end is in sight. We are almost there. We're in the end game now. So, while it may be hard, 
I've chosen to do my dissertation as a podcast because I can mix things up, play some music, add some sounds, and keep y'all on your toes while I tell y'all about these passions that drive me. I want to share my love of fictional libraries and my belief in the power of open and accessible knowledge, and finding a way to combine these passions was a challenge. So I feel that putting static words on a page in a manuscript that may never be read by anyone but my advisors is not the most efficient and effective way to share my ideas. Because let's be honest here, on the whole, dissertations generally aren't read by anyone except the committee and a small number of random scholars who will find it and request it. I don't want that for my final project. This is something that is important to me. I believe it's important to academia and I wanted to have a bigger audience than a traditional dissertation would have. I want to make an impact in the conversation about gatekeeping in academia, and I want to do it loud, y'all. Boom goes the dynamite. Fortunately for me, I am not a stranger to podcasting. I hosted my own show, Steampunk Dollhouse, for several years back when I was in library school, and I'm currently a co-host of Texas Steampunk Connection. I have a familiarity with the medium, and taking bits and pieces of audio ephemera and stitching them together is something that I really enjoy. And I want people to engage with my work, as I've said before. And I hope that by the end of this undertaking, we'll all have gained a greater understanding about libraries, knowledge, and accessibility. The library runs on conspiracy theory. Admit nothing deny everything, then find out what's going on, and publish a paper on the subject. It's not as if they can stop you doing that. So, if creating a dissertation and eventually earning a PhD is so hard, and if it can take such a toll, why am I doing it? Well, it's all about that access, y'all. I'm a big fan of open and accessible knowledge that is available to everyone with few limitations. I truly believe that everyone who wants to learn should be able to access the resources that they need, whether that means textbooks, journal articles, or databases. Library patrons, students, faculty, independent scholars, members of the community, should not be limited to just the resources that they and or their institutions can afford. You see, to access these resources, libraries have to pay money, and no library can afford to pay for all the resources that their patrons need. Even sharing services like interlibrary loan don't fill all the gaps. A system such as open access would fix this, but there's still tremendous resistance. My dissertation aims, at least in part, to understand why. And now you might be asking, what is open access exactly? To which I would answer. Let me explain. No, there is too much. Let me sum up. The most basic definition of open access is that it's a system that allows for research to be disseminated online without boundaries or barriers. This means that anyone who wants to access this research, whatever kind of research it may be, can view, download, and share it without restrictions. Of course, it's not really that simple because nothing in academia is ever simple, but that's the general idea. Let's look at it this way. Open access is a supplemental cog that supporters are trying to work into the incredibly complicated machine of the academic publishing industry. Some people believe that this cog will slot into the machinery and complement its existing processes. And some people believe that open access is actually a wrench 
meant to break the entire machine into pieces that will be scavenged for use in the post-apocalyptic academic hellscape of socialism that's sure to follow. And if you think I'm kidding, or being overdramatic, I assure you, I am not. The open access system has turned into a weird battleground of academic slap fights. It's honestly mind-boggling, but we'll go deeper into it in episode two. We'll get into all of it, eventually, but I can't spill everything all at once. What I need you to keep in mind right now is that this is a podcast dissertation about open access, but it's also a story about creating a podcast dissertation about open access. You are a library of confusion. So, at this point, you might be asking yourself, who is this woman, and what makes her qualified to analyze the social and cultural impact of libraries and the ways in which we think about open access versus restricted knowledge? And, well, it's pretty simple. I am a librarian. I received my master's in library science in 2018 from Texas Women's University's School of Library and Information Studies, after which I rolled right into my PhD program in rhetoric. Now, my initial plan when I first started college was to earn my master's and PhD in library science from TWU, but by the time I got to TWU to complete my undergrad, they had discontinued the PhD in library science. This left me a little adrift, and I assumed that I would get my master's degree and move on. And then six months before I graduated, I had a long lunch with a former professor from my undergrad, who happens to be my dissertation chair now, and she suggested that I think about doing a PhD in rhetoric, which would allow me to indulge my love of books about libraries and my zeal for open access, and analyze both of these things in some as-yet-undetermined way. We weren't really sure of all the details, but we would figure it out as we went along. Now, I also began working in the TWU library as a graduate research assistant in 2017 when I first started library school. In 2022, I was hired as a full-time staff member at that same library. So I've been pretty deeply embedded in the academic library scene for more than five years now. However, as with any story, there's a lot more to mine and we will get into it as we go along. Always leave them wanting more, kiddo. That's the rule. Now it's time to throw a little lingo at y'all because this is, at its core, an academic work, and that often requires an explanation of academic terms. If you find yourself feeling a little lost as I get into the minutia of literary theory, don't worry about it. I've been in college for 10 plus years now, and I still get confused sometimes. I just want to make sure that we're all on the same page when I start to get into the nuts and bolts of the books in question. So, first things first, it's important to note that each of the stories that I'll be analyzing exists within the realm of unnatural narratives. Unnatural narratives are a subset of fictional narratives that take place in ways or locations that violate the natural principles of the world as we know it. Unnatural narratives also contain plenty of elements that we would find in the real world, which helps to anchor the story and gives us a frame of reference within often inexplicable story worlds. Essentially, the use of a natural narrative allows authors more freedom to expand and examine archival anxieties that so many people seem to share about libraries. Jan Albert and his colleagues have stated that though a natural narrative's projected worlds may resemble the actual world we live in, they obviously do not have to. They can also confront us with physically or logically impossible scenarios or events. 
At the same time, I'll also be working with concepts surrounding alternate histories and their broader umbrella counterfactual narratives. Karen Hellickson has pointed out that the alternate history concerns itself with plausible causal relationships, and as such, it concerns itself with narrative and time. So, these kinds of alternate or counterfactual narratives where the world is different due to the removal of key historical figures, events, and technological advances are not uncommon. According to philosophy professors Johann de Smet and Helen de Cruz, people tend to remain quite close to reality when they envisage counterfactual situations. And now, the books. And the mind needs books like a sword needs a whetstone. Cogman's Invisible Library series takes place in an infinite and secret-filled library that sits at the center of a vast multiverse. This library is the anchor upon which the multiverse resides, and its very existence is all that maintains the balance within the many different worlds. Uh, Cogman's library is filled with literal and metaphorical layers. The librarians of this world believe that they know the library that they serve, but very few know the true nature of the library and how it came to be. Uh, Kane's Great Library series also tackles the idea of libraries and their secrets. However, Kane's Great Library is at the center of only one world, an alternate Earth, and it rules that world through single-minded ruthlessness when it comes to seizing, hiding, and even crushing any idea or invention that could challenge its authority. For the characters of Rod Duncan's The Fall of the Gaslit Empire series, the big bad comes in the form of the Peyton Office, a state authority that rules much of an alternate history Earth and is the sole arbiter of what should and should not be available to the public. Books and devices that could potentially destroy a world at peace fill the archives of the Peyton Office, but this withholding also keeps that peaceful world stagnant and lacking in progress. And Hackwith's Hell's Library series takes its readers to underworld libraries and archives where all that has ever been written or invented goes to die, either because the ideas remain unrealized by their creators or because these ideas have simply faded from the minds of humans. The custodians of these libraries and archives believe that they need to contain these lost and forgotten ideas and lock them away for the good of humanity. All of these narratives contain characters who find themselves caught up in resistance to the system that they've been living within. These systems are old, deeply embedded, and survive due to the populace's abject fear of the links to which the authorities will go in order to maintain the status quo. The exact reasons for resistance to these systems vary according to each story, but each one asks the same question. Who should have control of knowledge, and should it ever be freely available to all? Books are knowledge weaponized, and what weapons you cannot steal, you must burn. And now we come back around to the reason that we're here, this podcast and my dissertation. In order to give this subject the depth that it deserves, I will be releasing this podcast bi-weekly from March through October 2023 for a total of 16 episodes. There will also be two final bonus episodes that cover my defense of this monstrous undertaking that I'm pretty sure is going to swallow me and my advisors whole before the end of it. Because this isn't a simple subject, not even for scholars, but by reframing the open access debate through literary depictions of libraries, 
I hope to make it a hell of a lot more accessible. Fiction provides a middle ground that allows readers to access ideas that they normally might not while losing themselves in adventure and mystery. When we read fiction that is contemporary and current, that is close to our own situations, we may not always see a deeper meaning, and that's what I'm here for, to demonstrate how we can critique the nature of academic publishing and the people who have placed themselves as gatekeepers by using literary and rhetorical analysis to compare and contrast reality versus fantasy. Using fantastical libraries and archives as a platform in this way provides new situations that are still familiar enough to be acceptable while throwing together educational oppression, stagnating technology, weird history, and whole new worlds that are still ours somehow. And by using a podcast format, I can expand my reach and hopefully expand the conversation about open access. Even if those of us in the real world have to use podcasts instead of Alchemy and Living Ink, we fight with the tools that we have, and we work to provide better tools for those who come after us. The certainty that everything has been already written nullifies or makes phantoms of us all. We don't want to become phantoms, haunting the halls of the ivory tower, repeating the same forms and arguments that came before. So this is the tool that I've chosen, and the journey that I will be making. I hope that you'll join me as we venture into the depths of the library. There will be roguish government agents, clockwork automata, and dead gods aplenty. But the thing you really need to fear is the librarians. We're going to use the library's powers to change the world. Anxiety in the Archives is written, produced, and narrated by Elizabeth Hedrick. You can find episodes, transcripts, and references at anxietyinthearchives.com. If you'd like to start a conversation with me about what you've heard, please feel free to find me on Twitter at archiveanxiety. The theme song for Anxiety in the Archives is Mind Control by Half Cocked. This song and all of their episode music can be found on freemusicarchive.org. The cover art for Anxiety in the Archives was created by Matt Davis. This project couldn't have been born without the support of my committee, Gretchen Busel, Ashley Bender, and Dundee Lackey, who willingly ventured into unknown ground with me. I'd like to thank everyone that allowed me to interview them for this episode, including Abby, Amanda, Brett, Carol, Ginger, Kristen, Mehdi, Sapphire, Sarah, Suzanne, Woody, and G-Love. I would also like to thank all those that lent me their voices and brought life to the books that I love, including Selena, Shannon, and Benjamin. And finally, thank you for listening. Please join me in two weeks for Prologue Part 2, Defending My Prospectus.